God, I pray this morning that you would help us. Help us as we read this text. Help us as a church to grow up into unity. Lord, help us to grow up into unity by recognizing areas in the scripture that we must hold to together in unity, that we must hold fast to, that we must have a firm hand around and help us grow up in unity by recognizing the areas in scripture over which we can have good and godly disagreement. Help us also grow up into unity by being able to talk through our disagreements on non-central issues and disagree well with one another, challenge one another, and help us, Lord, not to have some prideful attitude of desiring to be on the same team as a certain view, but rather, Lord, make us creatures of your word, submissive to what it says. Give us hearts that would come into line with how you revealed yourself, Lord, and and give us humility in these things along the way. We love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It can be difficult to be a Minnesotan at the end of February and into early March, right? I mean, I think we... I was having a few conversations with people even prior to our time together this morning. After three or four months of being pummeled with snow, freezing temperatures, the first day of spring, it's like three weeks away, or so they tell us, right? We go outside in the morning to start our cars, and it's like five degrees again. We ask Siri, hey, uh, what's the high going to be today? And she says like nine, you know. And you start to feel some solidarity with the Narnians who said it was always winter but never Christmas. And one wonders if C.S. Lewis spent a February in Minnesota before he penned those words, right? If that was his inspiration. And then, of course, once things finally begin to warm up, like what happens? Things finally begin to warm up for a week or two. We get a little prideful. Some of us start wearing shorts altogether too early. And what happens? Well, we get a winter storm advisory turned warning that dumps another 15 inches of snow late March, early April. I'm not trying to depress you. You know, the only time, the only time that we've ever canceled a service in the short history of our church, four years, was in the middle of April a few years ago during a snowstorm, right? So this happens. It's, and, and during that time, it's easy, right? February in Minnesota is when it's easy to become skeptical um, that winter will ever end, I think is the idea. But, you know, at the same time, I say this because nobody actually, we actually thinks that, right? Even though we realize that it's foolish to get our hopes up with the first few warm days of spring or April. And even though hopefully we're superstitious enough not to put those boots away or take those scrapers and brushes out of our car until we're well out of the woods, guys, we're in this together. That means all of us. Um, Even though that's the case, we don't actually think that winter will go on forever. We know that once warmth comes, it eventually wins. It wins out. It wins the day. Heat beats the cold. That's just how it goes. If you put hot flames next to freezing, a freezing substance, ice. Uh, the ice doesn't cool down the flames. The flames melt the ice and everything around it. Once heat comes, it always wins. Winter doesn't start again until warmth goes away, until warmth is absent so that cold can flourish. And so even at the end of February and early March, we know that while it might snow again, probably will in April, by the time summer comes, there's, there's no more snow. We will actually have warmth. Like nobody thinks it's going to snow on the 4th of July in Minnesota. We know that summer will come, even when it's cold, even when it's bleak, even when we're at this point where we're all done with it, right? We know it'll come. And if we forget, and when's the easiest time to forget? It's February. All we have to do is remind ourselves of the power that heat has over the cold. And so when we come to Revelation 19 and 20, we see this glorious return of the king. We, we see the same thing, right? So the world can feel or appear at times very cold and dark like winter. And sometimes it feels like, it feels like February in this winter. Like every day we read the kinds of atrocities, injustices, acts of aggression and violence, war, persecution against Christians, death and destruction that makes us long for the return of our good king. It makes Christians long for that all around the world. In fact, as we speak, one of my friends, the lead pastor of a partner church of ours in the Czech Republic, is getting ready 
to bring a Ukrainian family into his house as they flee from Ukraine. So to give you an idea, the Czech Republic is closer to Ukraine than we are to Chicago, right? Um, it's, it's really in their backyard. And so as families flee from Ukraine, they're looking for places to put them. My friend Vashik is, their family is taking, potentially they're preparing to take in a Ukrainian family. In addition to that, one of the members of his church, Kostelinok in the Czech, is Ukrainian, and they're trying to get, he's trying to get his uh, daughter and granddaughter out of the Ukraine as we speak. So in these situations, Christians long for, they long for the return of their good king. And it can feel like February, and it can easily push us into a kind of hopelessness, as we said last week, as we ended our time together, it makes us lose potentially our mission and our expectancy. And last week we saw that we had actually, we have great reason to hope. Why? Because of what we discovered about the one who is to come, the one who is returning again, the one who came and is coming again. We saw both who he is and what he will do, that this right, white rider um, in, in Reve- Revelation 19, who returns to rescue his people, is none other than the risen Christ, and he will be victorious. And so now this morning, John wants to, to address any lingering questions or doubts people might have about the resurrection of this, uh, uh, the return of this good resurrected king. And he does this by reminding his readers that actually he has power over three realities in his return. Because his readers might get to the end of chapter 19 and say, well, what about Satan? You know, what about death? What happens to the ever-present and growing destruction and chaos that's been thrust onto the world via the demonic realm, for instance? And so John wants to demonstrate that just as heat has ultimate power over cold, just as light has ultimate power over darkness, the risen Christ has ultimate power over Satan, the demonic realm, the demonic forces. He has ultimate power over salvation. He's the one who saves. And he has ultimate power over judgment as creator He gets to be the one who stands in judgment over his creation. Creation doesn't judge. The creator does. Right. So he has power over Satan, power over salvation, power over judgment. That's our outline as we look into Revelation 20 together. The thing is, I'm only going to have time for the first one this morning. Okay. This is going to have to be a two-part sermon. I I, I wrote uh, wrote my first draft of this sermon, and it came to about... 16 and a half pages and single-spaced. And so you need to know that I tend to land at around seven pages. So what I did was I trimmed it. So you're welcome. I trimmed it all the way back to about 14. Um, but then I decided that uh, on a day when we're having a, uh, a lunch together afterwards, that might be pushing it. So uh, we're going to divide this into two for a few good reasons. I'm really hoping that um, this is helpful to you this morning as we look into what this text has to say, but in order to do that, we give a little bit more theological background. So you know, pastorally, methodologically, what I like to do is teach larger sections of the text so that we together learn how to read our Bibles section by section, paragraph by paragraph, sequence by sequence. That's normatively how I do this. I don't normally split up these units so that I only cover three verses at a time. But here in Revelation 20, what we find is the most, really the most disputed text among evangelicals today. Among, among Orthodox believing Christians, here we have the most disputed text. And so in order to make sense of that, I think it's helpful for us to step back and see what are the, what are the different options that we have for interpreting Revelation chapter 20, what are those strengths, what are those weaknesses? And I certainly, I'm going to share my view, I'm going to share specifically why I've landed on my view and why I don't land on the other views, so I'll share some of the issues that I have, the problems that I have. But some of us might initially hear that and we, we might say, well, what's the point then, right? So if evangelicals are so divided on this issue, why even spend time on it? Um, we'll get to that in a little bit. But let's just read. So here in this first section, the power over Satan, the resurrected Jesus, has the power over Satan, starting in verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit 
and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So, okay, there's a lot to cover even just here in these three verses, but probably the best way to to begin is to tell you at the front end of our passage, there has actually been, broadly speaking, four ways of interpreting this chapter. Four different ways of actually interpreting these three verses throughout different parts of church history. All right? One is a relative newcomer on the scene. Uh, you, you, You see pieces of it throughout church history, but you don't see it in its full form until about 1830. One was more dominant during times like the Great Awakening, during times of revival in the church, times where people were sensing more optimism. And then the other two, I would argue, have the most historical backing in terms of being the earliest, among the earliest Christian theologians and throughout church history, regardless of what kind of period we're finding ourselves in. So four views, and to get an idea of what um, I really do think is going on in this passage, I think it would be helpful for you to have just a basic understanding of these four views in Revelation 20. All of these views have somewhat different understandings. Here's the nature of the issue. They have somewhat different understandings of when Jesus returns related to the thousand years that we see mentioned in this text, also known as the millennial kingdom. So you have this mention of a thousand year period in which Jesus establishes a kingdom. So the question is, when does that thousand years take place? When does that kingdom take place? And when is Christ's return in the midst of it? Now before we get into it, let me just say, all four of these views you can hold to and still be from within Orthodox Christianity. This is not the same thing as talking about things like substitutionary atonement or the Trinity or the deity of Christ in which unity of the church demands that we have unity of interpretation. Here, we actually have various viewpoints even on our elder board. So our elder board, we have two who hold to one of these views, two who hold to the view that I'm espousing this morning, one who's uh, as far as I can tell, is still undecided until after I'm done. Um, but that's been really helpful together as we seek to grow up into unity, even as an elder board, and disagree on issues like this. But you need to know that there's, okay, you can feel free to disagree with me this morning, even as I share this, and you should probably know that I've been informed by one of those two elders that my public rebuke is immediately following the service at the Q&A. So you're invited to our Q&A afterwards as well. Um, so, okay, what are these views? Well, the first one we'll just refer to as dispensational premillennialism. Please hang on with me because this is the most complicated, both I think as a view, but also as like the words itself. Okay, so I'm going to try to have a shorthand so that we can all remember um, if I say dispensational premillennialism, like I use these kinds of terms, I can almost hear the eyes glazing over in the room. Um, hang with me. You just call it, call it dispy premill or whatever, right? So shorthand. It's also, so it's called premillennial. There are actually two of these views are premillennial. It's called premillennial because it holds to the interpretation that Jesus returns before this millennial kingdom is established before this period of a thousand years described in verse 2. So one commentary kind of has a helpful way of thinking about this. I've modified a bit, modified it a bit. But for those of you who, um, those of you who like milk in your coffee, some of you put the milk in before you put the coffee in, right? Which is the correct, that's the correct way. Um, in which case you're, you're pre-coffee. You have a pre-coffee view of Milk, because the milk goes in before the coffee arrives, right? Uh, you, you want your milk in first, and then comes the coffee. Well, premillennial is the position that Jesus returns. It's also the correct view. No, Jesus returns before the millennium is established, all right? Premillennial. But this first view is called dispensational premillennial. What does that word mean, dispensational? Okay, so... Probably the most common um, question that I've got at Q&A throughout our time in Revelation, as we've had Q&A afterwards, right over here, has been, what's this, what's this dispensational thing, right? Um, it's really hard to describe in a short period of time, and I keep punting. I keep telling people, we'll get to that later. <laughs> we'll get to it later. 
Uh, but here we are, okay? So dispensationalism teach, teaches that God has arranged his governance of this world order in a number of different periods, also called dispensations, during which he does things slightly differently. He um, relates to his people a little bit differently in particular. And I wish we could go each through each one of the more traditional dispensations. Typically, there's seven, although I've seen as many as like 12 and 14, right? So... Uh, there's not broad agreement on this, but typically they see seven dispensations from creation all, of, all the way to the end. I don't have time, even, even in 16 and a half pages, I don't have time to go through all seven of these. But I do think it's important to highlight the pinnacle of those dispensations in the Old Testament, which is the age of Israel in which ethnic Israel represents the people of God in which they follow the law. And if you remember, even as we preached through Nehemiah, the idea is that Israel, right, had this anticipation that if they could do the right kinds of reforms, if if they could hold to the law correctly, that they could usher in the kingdom. So then Jesus comes and offers the kingdom, and Israel rejects him. And so you see his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and as a consequence, the descent of the Holy Spirit, which brings the church age which is where they would argue we find ourselves now in history. The church is often seen as a parenthesis then between Israel and the coming kingdom, right? Because like the kingdom was offered to Israel, but they rejected it. So now we have this church age that comes in as a parenthesis. And so at some point during that period, Jesus will rapture the church out of the way. He'll get that parenthesis out of the way. And uh, along with it, the Holy Spirit is God's agent for indwelling believers. There's seven years of tribulation that follow that rapture, typically. There's some disagreements here, but I'll get to that. In which varying parts of these, so there's seven years of tribulation. So, you know, we've talked about these 42 months, 1260 days. On the dispensational view, there's some adding together mathematically, along with the book of Daniel, to come up with... This idea of a seven-year period of tribulation, it's also known kind of as Daniel's 70th week. If you're familiar at all with Daniel, that's the, that's the view that they take um, on which, it, during which the, the church is absent, but the world is experiencing great tribulation, typically again after the, the rapture. And then after that rapture, Jesus returns triumphantly to establish his millennial kingdom. So he returns. It's followed by a kingdom of a thousand years during which ethnic Israel is restored again and becomes again the centerpiece of his kingdom for the lack of a better phrase. Now listen, listen, listen. Here's the problem. Here's the problem that we're going to have this morning. There are a lot of different dispensationalists out there, right? So there's disagreements from within the camp. There's going to be disagreements from all, within all of these groups. It's really hard to like to summarize what one group believes about this, because from within that, you have a lot of different views. I'm just trying to give you the most general way of thinking about it. Uh, but the reason I bring this up first, and even at all, is because here's what's, what I've noticed. It's one of the reasons why I felt like I needed to preach this sermon that demonstrated these four different views, because a, a lot of Christians, so pastorally I've noticed, planting a church, planting a church and seeing non-believers come to Christ, planting a church and, and working alongside of those who have really um, no background in the Bible. They've never really opened the Bible at all. Um, right now, I think um, a lot of Christians and even non-Christians, even those without a lot of biblical literacy, they think that this view is just what Christians believe about the end times. Like, it's very common. I'm not sure if you realize, right? Like, even when we started this series in Revelation, right, I, I was getting a lot of people coming up to me and saying, so are we going to teach about, like, rapture and some of, some of these things? And they started to identify things that they had heard about Revelation. I would ask, like, well, have you opened up Revelation? No, not really. I kind of try to avoid it. Um, but but I, I don't think we realize the degree to which things like the, the Left Behind books, movies, starring the mysteriously wonderful Nicolas Cage himself, right? They, they permeated Western media to the point where it's made it seem like this is the evangelical view on Revelation, Revelation 20. I was having a conversation with a non-believing postgraduate skeptic in Marcy Holmes at Alma Cafe right about when we launched, telling him a little bit about who we are. And he said, oh, oh, Evangelical Free Church of America. Evangelical. Are you guys the ones who, who think that there's this rapture thing where, you know, one second you're there, the next second there's clothes and rings, jewelry kind of thing? Um, people are 
flying, Christians are flying aircrafts and then they're crashing because they were raptured? Is that, and, I, and I said, well, some Christians think that. Yes, but you get the idea. Even his, his illustrations were formed by what he had picked up based on uh, this kind of Western media uh, understanding of how evangelicals view the end times. Um, he had never opened up Revelation. He's a non-believing guy. So I said, some Christians think that today, yes. And so I, I, I bring all this up because I want to address this at the front end and say that while, you know, it's a biblically defensible view, we're brothers and sisters in Christ with those who hold to this view. And while, you know, it's been one of the more popular modern views from within the evangelical church more recently, we should all know that relatively speaking, it's kind of a newcomer. Dispensationalism in its full-blooded final kind of form isn't really seen in, in its in its full way, weight of, it, of the argument until about 1830. Prior to that, you see pieces of it for sure. You see shadows of it. But it doesn't really come together until about 1830. Contrast that with the first time amillennialism is outlined by Augustine of Hippo in the 5th century, right? So, like, it comes on the scene in its full form much, much earlier. So that's, even though this view is dominant in many cases in the Western world among evangelicals, it's pretty new. I'm not, a, I'm not dispensational. I've, I've made my arguments against it throughout the book as we preach through it. I won't belabor the points. I don't say any of this to demean dispensationalists. I'm simply trying to get it like, this is, these are the core issue of the reasons that I have difficulty here. All right, so I think, it in, I think it has a tendency of dehistoricizing the text. I think it interprets in a way that a first century audience would actually have less familiarity um, than a 21st century audience, which I think is backwards from the way that we should be reading the Bible. And I've talked about that before. If you I don't have time to get into it, but if, if you have questions, come to Q&A. Um, I think it comes close to ignoring apocalyptic genre of first century literature and takes things l- like numbers, marks on foreheads and wrists, locations, things that in apocalyptic is almost always symbolic as crudely literal. So even in our text this morning, a thousand means literally a thousand. Gog and Magog is a literal, on dispensationalism, typically it's a literal place where this battle is going to, to happen. Um, and I don't think, I don't think uh, Revelation teaches a secret rapture of the church. I think I've been clear about that through those passages. And if you have questions, go back and listen. Or come up and ask me afterwards. Now, people that hold that view, tons of respect for them. I have family members, brothers and sisters in Christ, even people here at Gospel Life Church who are dispensational, Pre-millennial, uh, they're believers. They love the Lord. They're serious about their Bibles, and we just have a disagreement about a difficult text, for sure, right? Uh, but I say all that. I say all this not to rebuke, but but so that people hear, there are actually other options on the table, and there have been right for a long time. So that's the first view: pre-millennial dispensationalism. If you have questions, come up afterwards. Second view, uh, we'll tackle more quickly. It's, it's known simply as post-millennialism or post-mill. It argues that Jesus returns after the millennium. So a pre-coffee milk coffee drinker uh, puts the milk in before the coffee. It's pre-coffee. A a post-coffee milk drinker puts the milk in after they put the coffee in. I've never really understood this because then you've got to get a spoon out and stir it. And then what do you do with the spoon and it affects the temperature? My wife would say... You use it on your cereal. We're a divided household on this issue. Um, but post-millennialism is, is this view that the millennial kingdom comes first and then Jesus comes. The way this happens is uh, in post-millennialism is that the gospel goes out and the world gets better and better. And uh, the gospel brings more and more change and gospel leavening until uh, essentially the world is Christianized. There's a golden era of sorts in which Maybe not everyone is a believer yet at this point, but at the very least, we see this millennial kingdom in which Judeo-Christian values really rule the day. The world is really sufficiently Christianized. Um, The the millennial kingdom is then established by the church in in a lot of respects. The Holy Spirit uses the church to bring about this kingdom. Uh, Most post-mills today don't believe it's literally a thousand years. Some have in history. It was more common a while ago, but not really today. Uh, but it eventually ushers in then the return of Jesus. Uh, this view was really more common when the church was influencing surrounding culture in a way that was very positive, thriving in culture, times of re- revival, times like the Great Awakening, 
in which, uh, you know, so Jonathan Edwards, Encyclopedia Britannica says he's like the greatest theologian America has ever produced. He was post-mill, right? But remember the time in which he comes into history. The, the church is thriving. The gospel's going out. There's every reason to believe the Western world is being Christianized. And so there's this idea that this is going to bring about this age of prosperity and blessing. And so it draws from uh, the passages of Scripture that speak of the gospel going out to all the world, the future time of prosperity. So they would read chapter 19 in two different ways, either as a picture of the gospel going out into the world with chapter 20 sequentially showing what happens as the gospel goes out. So they read 19 and 20 as a sequence in that way. Or they read it as a picture of what happened in the first century A.D., that chapter 19 reflects the fall of Rome, and then chapter 20 reflects what happens after. Either way, they're reading 19 and 20 as a pretty clear sequence of events, giving us something of a symbolic picture of what would happen uh, through the triumph of the gospel, giving us a picture of what happened in the first century. Here's the thing. There aren't very many post-millennial theologians around today. There's just not... At least part of the reason for that is that it doesn't seem to square with the reality in Scripture. Right? So I think one of the, one of the misconceptions by post-millennial thinkers is that the reason that people today don't hold to post-millennialism is because they look around outside and they see a world that still is very far from that. And actually, we've taken steps back since the Great Awakening. And so on the basis of this anecdotal evidence in, in the Western world, we say, well, it must not be true. I actually think that's a fair criticism, but that's actually not why I think there are, aren't very many post-millennials around. I think it's because it doesn't square with the reality of Scripture and especially Revelation that things will grow, will grow darker and darker prior to the return of Christ. Even here in this book, that seems to be one of the points that John is making throughout the book as he structures it. So if we think that the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bulls are symbolic for tribulation that occurs between the advents in human history, which that's what I argued from, uh, certainly it happened in the first century, happens throughout human history all the way to the very end. Look at how John structures it. In the seals, one-fourth of everything burns. In the trumpets, one-third of everything burns. And in the bulls, everything burns, right? So there's an increase of sin, suffering, and death. There's an increase of judgment. For the church, there, there appears to be an increase of persecution between the advents we see that uh, as we look at like the the downfall of Babylon and all the things that Babylon did uh, against the people of God throughout the ages. So the idea that the church is going to usher in this long period of blessing via the preaching of the gospel that that ushers in the end, you know, the eschaton, that doesn't seem to square with the reality that the world will give us trouble. Like this is how Jesus spoke. It is how the rest of the New Testament speaks as well. The world will give you trouble. The world, world will hate you. I'll give you my peace. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one who's ravaging in this world right now, right? So, okay, that's the second view, post-millennialism, and some of the issues that I have with it. Uh, third, you have amillennialism. And you know, this uh, isn't, strictly speaking, a great name for it. I don't think it really reflects what those who hold this view believe, and I think the coffee analogy is helpful in showing why it's not a great name. So, if pre-coffee drinkers put their cream in first... The cream goes in pre the coffee. And uh, if post-coffee drinkers put it in second, ah, coffee drinkers don't put any coffee in. They just drink the cream. It's a little weird way of drinking coffee. But, but that's not what amillennialism means, right? It doesn't mean no coffee. It doesn't mean no millennium. Every amillennial thinker that I read, and I, you know, throughout my preparation and revelation, I was really careful. Um, two of my three primary comment are amillennial, and I think they're the best voices of amillennialism, okay? So uh, even as we read amillennialism, what we come to find are the thinkers who really hold to this view, and I'll talk about what it is. They say that the amillennialism, uh, the millennial is very real. The millennial kingdom is very real, that it's literal, okay? That, that it's, uh, it's vibrant. So what does it mean? Well, it's saying that we're actually in the millennium right now, currently. Amillennials take Revelation 19 to be the same event as Revelation 20. They argue that just as John does in many other places in Revelation, he simply tells us the same story again. He shakes the kaleidoscope to give us another view into the end in 20 that he gave us 
in 19. That's how Tom Schreiner puts it. Schreiner is a great amillennial voice. If you want a really good argument for amillennialism, read his commentary on amillennialism. Like, I, I encourage you to do that. If you want a really great voice on postmillennialism, read Doug Wilson's book. Um, I want you to hear the best versions of these arguments. I'm not giving you them pretty clearly. But, uh, you know, Sam Storms is another guy who gives a great, a great uh, argument for amillennialism. But I love how Schreiner says what John does is he shakes the kaleidoscope and gives you another view. And then he shakes the kaleidoscope and gives you another view. Why? Because we see that throughout Revelation, right? Like the sixth seal is the eschaton, and then he shakes the kaleidoscope. The seventh trumpet is the eschaton. He shakes the kaleidoscope. The seventh bowl is the eschaton. Right? He keeps giving us these looks over and over, and, and, and so, Schreiner says, he's doing the same thing here. He's giving us a look through a different lens. And so in 20, what we read about, according to Amel, is that Satan has been bound already at the cross of Jesus Christ. They would agree with postmillennialism on this. That he's been bound at the cross in the sense that he can now no longer stop the progress of the gospel in the world for this period of time in which the gospel goes into the world, this period of the millennial kingdom. Obviously, they don't take a thousand as literal, uh, similar to post-millennial thought. They don't take the thousand as literal. It's just this period of time between the advents in which the, Satan cannot now stop the, the onward uh, progress of the gospel among all of the nations. And that period of time is the millennial kingdom. The problem here is twofold. You'll, you'll mostly see why that's the case as I take us through the passage both this week and next week. But um, this really is the only view of the four that denies the sequence between 19 and 20. Right? So we need to know that. Like, post-mill argues for a sequence. Dispensational and historic pre-mill argue for a sequence between 19 and 20. Amillennial is the only view that says, no, 19 has to be different than 20. And on that view, it has to be. It has to be. Uh, also, I think, like post-mill, it argues for things that doesn't square with re- what Revelation has to say elsewhere. And even what their own view would suppose elsewhere. Mostly regarding Satan, as we'll see this morning. So the problems that I see it, it's one of these views. Dispensational pre-mill. It rightly sees sequence in 19 and 20. It rightly deals with various words like revela- uh, resurrection in, in chapter 20 has a lot of good things that I agree with, but unfortunately it tends towards dehistoricizing the text. I think not taking apocalyptic literature seriously, I have a hard time affirming it. One of these views, post-mills, rightly sees sequence in 19 and 20, and actually rightly takes first century history very seriously, maybe even a little too seriously, but it doesn't square with the rest of the book of Revelation. Regarding the increase of tribulation, suffering throughout the book, it doesn't square with how the rest of the scripture talks about this. So I have a really hard time affirming it. The third view, Amil, rightly takes first century history, church history, into account. Does a great job with apocalyptic literature. But it denies the sequence of 19 and 20. And as I'll argue, I think it has a kind of special pleading throughout Revelation 20 as a result. There's kind of a special pleading um, involved with that argument. So, if only there was a fourth view that took... First century context, church history, apocalyptic literature seriously, while at the same time affirming sequence in the text, being willing to go where the text goes. Ah, but there is. It's called historic premillennialism, and it just so happens to be my view because I'm preaching and I get to talk this way. Uh, the reason it's called historic premill, as opposed to dispensational, is because the other premill view, like I said, you see shadows, bits and pieces throughout church history, but you don't see it in a complete way until about 1830. When you take a survey of the early church on eschatology, and I can point you to a number of these, some of them done by amillennials, what we see is that actually historic primo does seem to be the dominant view among the earliest believers, although we, we acknowledge that amillennialism was the other major player. It was first outlined by Augustine, like the, the early uh, 5th century, late in his time. So interestingly enough, you know, if you take the, um, I, I really love the amillennial view. If you take the amillennial reading of Revelation and my reading of Revelation as a historic pre-mill, you find them in lockstep all the way through the text until you get to the end of 19 and the beginning of 20. And then, after that section is over with, they really kind of do fall back into agreement for chapters 21 and 22. So other than this very small handful of verses, 
They're really in agreement. They have more in common broadly as you read Revelation. Um, now on the millennium, post-mill and amill seem to have more commonalities. They both assert that Jesus returns after the millennium. But taken as a whole on Revelation, my view and the amillennial view is really the same until you get here. And to let you in on a little bit of my story, right? So um, I graduated my undergraduate program, dispensational pre-mill, very strongly. Moody Bible Institute's very dispensational pre-mill. So this was the view, and I kind of still had that, well, evangelical Christians kind of hold to this view. I had that mentality. I went to seminary, and when I concluded seminary, I started thinking, you know what? Um, I, I had to read a lot of pages of apocalyptic genre for some of my classes. I had to do an in-depth dive on eschatology, and I said, you know, I really think dispensationalism doesn't do justice to the numbers, to the symbols, to, to the first century audience who's reading this and how they would have understood it. So I decided that I was leaning pretty hard toward Amil. And so when I came to, to New Hope Church um, as one of the pastors there in 2006, I told Pastor Steve Gould, I said, I, I don't think I can pursue licensing in this denomination because I'm pretty sure I'm all millennial. So he had me write a letter to the EFCA, and it was kind of a whole thing. But then the, the more study I did, the more I realized that there actually is a view that gave me everything that I wanted in terms of, in terms of uh, s- symbolism, all of those things that, that um, was in lockstep with Ah Mill, that also, I think, best handles verses 19, uh, chapters 19 and 20. So what's my view? Well, let's uh, finally go back over the, these verses again in our last four minutes and consider this first reminder in the text. So, the risen Christ has ultimate power over Satan. Power over the demonic realm, right? Verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, and shut it until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So he threw him into the pit, shut it, sealed it over him that he might not deceive the nations any longer. I want us to think about that for a little bit. Okay, so this, this text begins with the word, then. Then I saw. Now why? It could be for two reasons. The word itself doesn't necessarily mean that what's happening in tw- chapter 20 is in sequence from 19. We've said this before. Sometimes John moves us from one thing he's seeing to the next thing he's seeing in the same vision by saying then, you know, like... Like, um, I heard the 144,000. Then I looked and I saw the great multitude. I argued this is the same sequence. Right? This is sequential. That then is a, is a pivot in the same sequence to what happens next. But at other points, he's simply saying then in the sense that he's seeing a new vision altogether. Then I saw a new vision. The kaleidoscope is, is shaked and we look, we see something new. Just say, saying what he's seeing next. So the question is, how do we determine whether something is in sequence or if it's a new vision? And the answer is, and I've said this before, context, context, context. Context determines that for us. And that's all. Like, we have to be very careful not to import an outside scheme structure into the text in order to figure out whether or not something is in sequence or not. We have to look at what the text says. And in this case, I think there's a reason why three of the four views see sequence here. I think it's at least as clear of sequence here as it was in chapter 7. Please don't take my word for it. Put your nose in the text with me. Look, look with me in your Bibles at chapter 19, starting in verse 11. Let's outline this together. What happens first? The heavens open. The risen Christ returns on a white horse. He comes to judge, make war. This is the, this is the glorious return of Christ. Everyone but the post mills are agreed on that. The beast uh, and the kings of the earth are gathered with their armies against him, verses 18 and 19. These armies are instantly slain by the sword of Jesus' mouth, verse 21. The beast and the false prophet are both captured, thrown into the lake of fire, given final judgment. And then we get to the beginning of, of chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. And here we see they seize the dragon. God seizes the dragon. Now, throughout Revelation, this unholy trinity, we talked about it. Satan, the dragon is Satan. The beast from the sea, the Antichrist. The beast from the land, the false prophet. Satan, the beast and the false prophet. The dragon, the beast, the false prophet. They come as a a group. 
They're routinely seen together. They're mentioned together. Like Satan is moving and acting through them. That's part of the purpose of this writing is that, that here we see like an unholy trinity, an aping of God. He's inflicting terror on God's people through the beast and the false prophet. So Jesus returns. He defeats the army of the beast and the false prophet, throws them in the lake of fire. There's no mention of the dragon yet until you get to verse 1 where he seizes the dragon because the dragon's armies and his minions have now been destroyed. He's the last one standing. There are no more armies to command. He is now seized. He's again mentioned with these other two. Behind everything that was happening was Satan. But he's not just thrown into the lake of he's not thrown into the lake of fire with them, not just yet. He doesn't share their fate yet. He will be by the end of the chapter, actually, and John mentions exactly that. Listen to the word, the words. This is why I think you see sequence across so many views. Uh, in verse 10, it says that Satan was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever. So he's going back to the end of 19 and saying, you remember how Satan, or how the beast and the false prophet were thrown into the, the lake of fire? Yeah, now at the end of 20, Satan joins them. This has sequence written all over it. It's actually taking you back to the end of 19 by the time you get to the end of 20. And while I think the amillennial view needs to see this as two separate events in order to make that work, I don't find it convincing for these reasons. The flow of the narrative seems to strongly indicate sequence, these things are happening together, the return of Christ, the destruction of the army that stands opposed to him, eternal judgment of the beast and the false prophet, the seizing and binding of the dragon, Jesus has returned. He's putting all things to rights. So then what happens to Satan? Well, the angel has keys to a bottomless pit for a reason, and a chain for a reason, right? Satan is bound with this great chain. He's thrown into this bottomless pit, also translated abyss. The idea is that it's under the earth for a thousand years. And if that weren't enough imagery for you, not only is he thrown in, but it's, it's shut and it's sealed over him so that the text tells us he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are over. So what does this mean? Well, Jesus returns for a long period of time, a period indicating great length. I don't take a thousand to be literal. I don't. I think in apocalyptic uh, literature, these numbers are symbolic. I take it to mean... A period of time, a long period of time. All views take this to mean, essentially, a period of time. And during that period, he establishes his kingdom on earth, during which Satan can't deceive the nations any longer. Now, why don't I take this to mean, along with my post-millennial friends and all-millennial friends, that this is referring simply to the reality that he can't stop the progress of the gospel among the nations, that the gospel can still move forward in various places of the world? the way that the amillennial view takes it. Well, because that's not what the text says. It says he can no longer deceive the nations. And even here in Revelation, Satan is said to be deceiving the nations. The exact same phrase, during the time that most amillennials take to be between the advents. So he's, he's deceiving the nation between the time that Jesus came first and his second coming, during the time that he's bound and can't deceive the nations. Let me, let me give you an idea of what I'm talking about. In chapter 12, Satan is referred to as the deceiver. That's what kind of kicks us off with this deception language. He's titled the deceiver. He's cast out of heaven. He's no longer able to be in the presence of God. And do you remember what I argued in chapter 13? I said that, okay, so here we have Satan who cannot exercise his wrath in the heavenlies because God has all power over him, cast out of God's presence, but he's, he's on the earth. So what does he do? He sets his wrath against mankind in chapter 12. Right? Um, he sets his wrath on the people of God, the woman in the desert and, and the offspring, which is us. And then in the next chapter, chapter 13, which I take to be describing this struggle between the time that Jesus first came and when he will come again, as most on mills do as far as I can tell, it says that the beast and the false prophet under the authority of the dragon, it says, deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So the deceiver, cast down from heaven, what does he immediately begin to do? He deceives people upon the earth. But then in the next chapter, chapter 13, in describing the, the, the fall of Babylon, which I think we all agree, other than our post-millennial friends, we all agree hasn't happened in an ultimate sense yet. It says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made the nations, same nations that Satan is said to not be able to deceive in, in chapter 20. She, she has made the nations drink wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. 
So Satan can't deceive the nations, but he can, through the great prostitute, make the nations drink the wine of her passion? Where's this prostitute seated? According to chapter 17, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. This prostitute whom Satan is using to deceive the nations is seated upon the nations. Chapter 18 repeats that. For the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And if that's not clear enough, at the fall of Babylon at the end of chapter 18, before we get to these two chapters of 19 and 20, we looked at this two weeks ago. It says, so Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And listen to this. All nations were deceived by your sorcery. All nations were deceived by your sorcery. You either have to argue that Babylon has already fallen and that this imagery only refers to first century event, and even then you have a lot of problems because the, the cross and resurrection where Satan was supposed to be bound happens about 40 years prior to that, right? So, okay, you either have to say that Babylon has already fallen, this imagery is completely reserved for a first century event, or you have to say that Satan, that, you know, the bottomless pit doesn't seem very bottomless. He's deceiving. He's at work. So how do you arrive at the idea that Satan is bound right now as both Amil and Postmill do? Well, I, I think uh, it can only happen by importing other verses from the New Testament as the reason for the binding. So what I'll often hear, what I'll often read, is that Jesus declares, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. So here we see Jesus declaring that he has all authority, and so therefore the gospel can go out unhindered. So Satan is bound with respect to the Great Commission. The problem is... It's not the language Revelation 20 uses. And the language that Revelation 20 uses, that language we see Satan doing repeatedly between the advents and Revelation. I don't see any reason for that to be imported. In his lectures on this chapter, D.A. Carson comments about how strong the language is related to Satan. He says that he worries that sometimes we can import outside texts as a primary means of interpreting Revelation. And so he goes on to say this. He says, methodologically, it's not wise to begin your interpretation in Revelation by citing a whole lot of verses from elsewhere in the New Testament. It's not that those other verses can't be reconciled with this. That's not the point. Of course they can. The problem is, you must first ask the question, what do, how does John look at it? What is John emphasizing? And John emphasizes in this book that until the end, Satan is in the position of chapter 12. That is, he's been cast out of heaven, but on the earth he's a nasty piece of work. He's full of rage. He's full of enmity against the woman and her offspring, and that is us. Do you see? Do, 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 do you see? That's how Carson talks. Okay. This is, he, see, he goes on. This is so much a part of the book of Revelation. The beast is behind so much in Revelation. The devil is using the beast who's using the second beast and the great prostitute. The devil is active all the time, and if one of the beasts dies, he comes back to life again. That's just so much a part of the entire scheme of Revelation that it was one of the turning points that moved me out of the heritage of amillennialism. At the end of the day, I don't think it makes sense of the book of Revelation. So Carson, I, nobody here would be surprised by this statement. I, I agree with Carson. I almost wore my D.A. Carson Kurnak sweater today. But this is part of the reason why when we get to chapter 20, I part ways with my amillennial, postmillennial brethren despite enormous disagreement with Amill for most of the book. But why does it matter? Okay, so in closing, let's think of it in, in two ways this matters. Number one, this matters to go over areas in which there's disagreement because part of growing up in unity as a church is the ability to have disagreements with one another in which we, we can actually challenge one another's views and each one examine our views in light of Scripture, knowing that here's, here's an area of Scripture in which there's, there's common disagreement. I think we're... We're continuing on in a culture in which there's no longer any capacity for disagreement, right? Like my favorite Super Bowl commercial was the mixed nuts one, right? Do you eat your mixed nuts? Do you like organize them and unmix them? Or do you eat them together? And they say, oh, let's, let's ask Twitter. And then people are like burning cities down uh, over the question, right? Why? Because we can't disagree anymore. And here the on areas like this, the church has an opportunity to model what it looks like for us to say, okay, here's a disagreement over which we can all actually arrive at different points. How do we do that well? But related to our question this morning, why does it matter? Well, regardless of what your view is on the millennium, and this will come in, I think, even more strongly next week, now that we've got some of this background out of the way. This first reminder, 
Jesus has the power over Satan. Jesus has the power over the satanic realm. That shines bright for us on all of these views, doesn't it? In the same way that winter has no power over summer, in the same way that cold has no power over darkness, we see that Satan has no power over God. God has all power over Satan, all power over the demonic realm, all power over any authority that Satan thinks he has. Despite the deception that continues to be leveled on the world in various ways, don't let it fool you. Like, don't buy into this nonsense today from influential thinkers like Jordan Peterson who say that like Satan and God, good and evil, yin and yang, order and chaos, they're basically the same thing. They're on level playing fields. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. The scriptures demonstrate that God is working in a way that he might allow Satan to be active for a time, but the time is coming in which Satan will be once for all defeated. And the reason we know that he's once for all defeated is because of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ at the cross that we proclaim to one another at the table. Satan is defeated, friends, because at the cross of Christ, Jesus demonstrated the means by which we might know God, the means by which we can be known by him, the means by which when he comes again, we get to live with him forever. So all of the different views that I talked about today, they all agree that Jesus will return physically, bodily, to this world to reign with us, forever. We will worship him. We will enjoy him. Uh, This life is held out to you. It's held out to you at the cross where Jesus took the wrath and punishment that you deserve that Revelation makes known to us. This this picture of, of wrath and punishment that Revelation continues to come back to in 19 and again we'll see it next week. He experienced this at the cross. His blood was shed so that ours wouldn't have to be So that now by trusting in his work and not in our own, we can have life with him forever. We can have what these scriptures hold out to us. We can have this kingdom that we'll come into even further view next week. And so if you're a believer, we proclaim this gospel that reconciles us with God at the table. I invite you, if you're a believer in Jesus, to come forward and participate with us. Take the elements with you back to your seats. If you're not a believer, if you're here and you're a skeptic, if you find these things interesting because you're like, man, I want to know what Christians have to say about the end times, Participate in this, but participate by observing and asking questions. But now I invite you forward to take the elements with you back to your seats.